I would like to begin with a brief summary of my submissions before I proceed to the main body of my argument. Uh, firstly, today I will be arguing that the distinction between a cause of action and a defence is logically flawed, and that for that reason promissory estoppel should be available as giving rise to a cause of action in English law. I will go on to argue that the distinction in practice is purely historical and should not be maintained in today's law, and furthermore that there are no other more modern reasons of keeping this distinction. Finally, if your Lordship finds that promissory estoppel can give rise to a cause of action, I will then submit that the requirements for such an estoppel are not met in this case. If your Lordship is happy with that order of uh, submission, that makes sense, yes. Thank you. Firstly, my Lord, it is submitted that it is illogical that proprietary estoppel may give rise to a cause of action when promissory estoppel can only be used as a defence. It is submitted that this distinction is logically flawed. In support of this proposition, we can look to the Australian case of Walton Stores and Maher. If I could direct your lordship to that case at page 425. The passage I'm looking at is right at the very bottom of the page. Which Justice Brennan says, There is no logical distinction to be drawn between a change in legal relationships affected by a promise which extinguishes a right and a change in legal relationships affected by a promise which creates one. My Lord, it is submitted that this shows that there is no principled reason for allowing one type of estoppel to found a cause of action, while the other cannot. If the estoppel has the effect of changing the legal relationship between the parties, then it should be possible to enforce the effects of that change through a legal action. And it should not matter whether this enforcement is via a cause of action or as a defence, since there is no real logical distinction between the two. My Lord, this can be further demonstrated if we look to the facts of Walton Stores. It is submitted that if the case were to be decided in English law, it would fall into what we have termed a lacuna of logic. It could not be proprietary estoppel, since the Mahas were not claiming any new interest in land, and so there was nothing on which to found the action. And as a promissory estoppel claim, it would fail, since promissory estoppel cannot create a new cause of action. If the Mahas want a lease, then they win the case. If they want to grant a lease, then they lose. And it is submitted that there is no principled reason as to why that small change in facts should make such a significant difference. My Lord, my second submission is that the distinction in practice is purely historical and should not be maintained in the modern law. Firstly, my Lord, historically land law developed in a separate paradigm to contract law, so that it made sense that promises involving land should be subject to different rules, and that some of these distinctions should still survive today. However, it is submitted, my lord, that difference in origin is not the same as difference in nature. The time has come now to modernise the law and to recognise the overlap between the two types of right and between the interests protected by the different kinds of estoppel. For support of this proposition, my lord, we can look to recent cases. For example, uh, the case of Crabbe and Aaron. I won't take your lordship to it since it's a very brief quote. But Lord Justice Scarman in that case, at page 193, says, I do not find helpful the distinction between promissory and proprietary estoppel. 
In the case of Cobb and Yeoman, again, I'm just going to quote very briefly from this case, at page 1761, Lord Scott uh, treats proprietary estoppel as a subspecies of promissory estoppel. My Lord, it is submitted that this shows that the two types of estoppel, in fact, come from the same province. An action in law ought to be founded on estoppel, which has different subsets, but which all should give rise to a cause of action, since, as I've explained above, there is no logical distinction between giving rise to a cause of action and acting as a defence. My, my next submission is that there are no other satisfactory reasons for keeping the distinction. Firstly, it is submitted that one of the major arguments usually advanced for not allowing promissory estoppel to give rise to a cause of action is that this undermines the doctrine of consideration, which of course is a fundamental tenet of English law. However, it is submitted that the doctrine of consideration is being weakened. We now allow, for example, nominal consideration and for practical benefits to act as consideration. It is submitted, my lord, that it will be a small step from this position to one in which we view detrimental reliance itself as a kind of consideration. My lord, in support of this, if I could take direct your attention towards the case of Dillon and Llewellyn. So I could direct you to page 522 of that case. This is at the, um, towards the bottom of the third page. Our report doesn't have page numbers, but it's uh, okay, bottom of the third page. That's right. Um, the Lord Chancellor, Lord Westbury, at that point says, the subsequent expenditure by the son, with the approbation of the father, supplied a valuable consideration originally wanting. Well, it is submitted that this approach, in which consideration, uh, in which, excuse me, detrimental reliance is seen as a type of consideration, should be revived now that the doctrine of consideration is seen as much less rigid. We can also see this trend in more recent cases. Um, <coughs> Mr Justice Brennan in Walton Stores at page 424 says that detrimental reliance looks like consideration and suggests that equitable estoppel almost wears the appearance of contract. My Lord, it is submitted on behalf of the appellant that the time has come to assimilate detrimental reliance into the much more loose modern concept of consideration. My Lord, the second part of my submission is depends on uh, your Lordship's finding on the first part. If your Lordship finds that promissory estoppel may give rise to a cause of action, it is submitted that the requirements for such an estoppel are met in this particular case. Firstly, there was an a clear and unequivocal promise by Mr. Pavmathios to Mr. Birch. Mr. Birch clearly relied on this promise in the sense that he has altered his position by putting in the extra time, extra work, extra effort. Furthermore, it is submitted that there is a causal link between the promise and the detriment incurred by Mr Birch. It is submitted that Mr Birch would not have done any of the extra work had the promise not been made. There is no other plausible reason for him to have worked the extra. Uh, in response to the suggestion that the two people, that they were very close friends, it can be argued that the fact that two people are friends does not usually entail one doing £500,000 worth of extra work for the other. We also know from the facts of the case that Mr Birch was delighted that he would get half the company and was inspired by this promise to do the extra work. My Lord, furthermore, we can also argue that it would be inequitable to allow Mr Papermathios to resile from the promise, since his encouragement to Mr Birch to rely on the promise constitutes unconscionable conduct, which is another element of promissory estoppel in English law. He incurred detriment as a result, which we can clearly see through his, uh, the extra work from the hours that he put in, and it is in fact impossible for him to resume his original position, since it is impossible for him to turn back the clock and get back all the hours that he put in. 
We know subsequently that he has uh, obtained another job with Dr. Crazed, uh, and that the salary on this job is, is rather more than he was receiving from Mr. Peg Mathios. And so we can see that it would have been possible for him to obtain alternative employment had he not been relying on the promise made to him by his current employer. My lord, do you have any further questions? Uh, not for the time being. Okay. Thank you. That concludes these submissions. regarding the second ground of appeal, um, the issue of quantum, should your lordship find in favour of the appellant on the first ground. I have two principal submissions to make, your lordship. Um, firstly, that the appellant should be entitled to his expectation as a remedy, namely £500,000, and in the alternative, that he should at least be entitled to his reliance, and that that equates to more than the £500,000. I'm sorry, on the first point, I said his expectation of £100 million. Um, to proceed so, sorry, sorry, just to be clear. Your, first, your primary argument is that he should be entitled to his expectation of 100 million. million, and your alternative? Alternative that he should be entitled to his reliance, and that equates to more than the £500,000 of overtime work. I'm proceeding to my first submission that the appellant should be entitled to his expectation, a remedy of £100 million. We submit that this is so. Firstly, because expectation should be available in principle in cases of promissory estoppel. Admittedly, this is not an issue which has been much discussed in the English case law, because as yet promissory estoppel has not been overtly recognised as conferring a cause of action. However, it was so recognised in the Australian case of Walton, Storrs and Maher, in which the court gave an expectation remedy, um, namely damages in view of specific performance. If I might direct your Lordship's attention to the, ju to the judgment of um, Chief Justice Mason and Mr Justice Wilson at page 406 of that case. It is at the section um, at the end of, of where they deal, they do an overview of the doctrine of promissory estoppel. It's the first... Um, at the first full paragraph of that page, they state that the foregoing review of the doctrine of promissory estoppel indicates that the doctrine extends to the enforcement of voluntary promises. They argue that promissory estoppel vindicates actual promises and as a result that it protects expectation. And therefore two pages later they conclude that they have helped that the um, that, um, the, that Waltons are stopped from retreating on its promise, and thus the remedy is one of expectation. And we submit that this case should be followed in terms of its remedy. <coughs> However, should the court feel that it is inappropriate to rule that expectation relief should always be available in promissory estoppel cases, we submit that it would be possible to transfer the structure used in some proprietary estoppel cases to cases of promissory estoppel. If your Lordship is agreeable, I propose to briefly explain that structure and why we submit that it fits to cases of promissory estoppel. Well, just before you do, how do you address the what I what I see as a manifest disproportion between the expectation number and the reliance number? 
Um, my Lord, I intend um, to deal with that in this um, upcoming section um, regarding um, regarding the analysis of the proprietary struggle, because I, I feel that's something that's addressed in those cases, um, if that's, if that's um, agreeable to watch it. Sure. I'm referring to the analysis conducted by Mr. Simon Gardner um, of the case of uh, the dictator of Lord Justice Walker in Jennings and Rice, um, which is relied heavily um, upon in Powell and Benning at paragraph 20 of that case. If your lordship um, could find that, that section. Yes, yes. The key here is a distinction between bargain and non-bargain cases. And in bargain cases, the relief should correspond to the claimant's expectation. And it is in non-bargain cases that a court has a discretion to award a remedy, and that is the type of case where the issue that your Lordship identified of proportionality between the detriment and the expectation must be satisfied. Um, my Lord, we submit that this structure fits well with cases of promissory estoppel because it permits us to take into account the broad nature of claims that can arise under a promissory estoppel. Firstly, promissory estoppel is contractual in nature, being concerned with the enforcement of promises. Evidently, it's not a strict contract because more than a breach is required to trigger relief. However, we can see reliance as functioning as a sort of alternative to consideration, as my learned senior um, highlighted to your lordship, as is demonstrated in the case of Dylan and Llewellyn. We submit, my lord, that these types of cases should be considered bargain cases and should yield an expectation remedy. However, if the estoppel is not akin to contract, for example, if it relies more heavily on unconscionability rather than the enforcement of a clear promise, it would be logical, in our submission, to give less than the expectation and these would be called non-bargain cases. Therefore, we submit that the flexibility of this structure allows the law to accommodate a broad spectrum of cases without being, without being um, constrained to giving a simple remedy. And if I might highlight um, the dicta of um, the Master of the Rolls, Lord Denning, in Crabbe and Aaron, when he said that equity is displayed at its most flexible in cases of estoppel. My Lord, we submit that this is a bargain case and therefore should yield expectation. The reason for this, my lord, is, is the, that we, we submit that the criteria laid down by Lord Justice Walker and Jennings and Rice are met in this case. Sir Peter Gibson cites them in paragraph 45 of Powell and Benning. Um, he cites Lord Justice Walker as saying that in a case of this sort, as in a, a bargain case, both the claimant's expectations and the element of detriment to the claimant will have been defined with reasonable clarity. My lord, we submit that the expectation and the detriment are sufficiently well defined in this case, and therefore it is akin to a contract. The expectation is clear, it was half the value of, a, of the company once it was a success. And the detriment is also clear, it was whatever it would take for this project to succeed. And it is obvious that this would involve working extra hours. We submit that this is different to the facts of power, where it was not clear that the detrimental acts were required. My Lord, finally on the question of expectation, it is the case for the appellant that reliance would not be enough to satisfy the equity raised in this case. We know that the project would not have succeeded without Mr. Birch's input. For example, it uses his voice. Although we know how much extra work he put in, we cannot quantify the full reliance. Factors such as that he may have changed jobs had a promise not been made, um, stress factors, other lifestyle adjustments, and the fact that he assisted with every aspect of the professor's life. My Lord, we submit that it is unrealistic to value this extra work in purely monetary terms. Mr. Birch undertook it, because he believed that he stood a chance of making a very great gain. And I would ask your Lordship to consider that he also ran the risk that the company would not be a success and that he would not make a gain. And in our submission, this type of relationship is more akin to a contract. 
Did you say it was, uh, sorry, I mean, uh, just about to, you said it was unrealistic that his extra work could be quantified in monetary terms. Sorry, my lord. there's expert evidence put in on this. Sorry, my lord, um, to clarify that point, his overtime work can be, has been quantified and is not contested at £500,000. Mm -hmm. I'm referring to other factors, such as the fact that he may have decided to change jobs if the promise not be made, um, other stress factors, the fact that he assisted with every aspect of the professor's life in order for the project to succeed, and those we submit are unquantifiable. My Lord, if I might move on um, quickly to my second um, key submission, if your Lordship is not minded, minded to award an expectation, um, regarding the issue of the quantification of the reliance, um, which I have already um, dealt with in brief by, by referring your Lord to, to aspects of reliance which have not been quantified. My Lord, should reliance be being considered in the alternative, we must still satisfy um, the equity that has been raised. In Powell and Benny, whilst the expectation was not given, the award took account of more than simple expenditure, and the key to this is in uh, paragraph 14 of that case, if I might direct your lordship to that. Uh, here Sir Peter Gibson is citing paragraph 63 of the trial judge. Which paragraph? Paragraph 14. Um, the trial judge stated, looking at the size of the estate and the disappointment they have suffered, in my judgment it is appropriate to increase the monies due to the claimants from, and he refers to what Sir Peter, Sir Peter Gibson identifies as £8,830 of expenditure, as due to a total of £20,000. Evidently, my lord, this cannot be used as a rigid formula. Sir Peter Gibson criticises the trial judge for not explaining how he arrived at the £20,000. However, we submit that the principle that should be taken from Powell and Benning is that more than simple expenditure is compensated. And in our case, that would equate to more than the £500,000 of overtime work. In Mr Birch's case, we submit that the size of the estate and the disappointment suffered by him, which is key, as well as the factors other than the quantifiable work, which I have already identified to your lordship, suggest that a remedy over and above £500,000 would be necessary to satisfy the equity raised. Unless your lordship has any questions, well, I can please... I'm, I'm intrigued as to how I might assess... Uh, uh, compensation circumstances where the additional work can't be quantified in monetary terms. Um, my lord, I would not. I would not um, suggest today a, a rigid sum that should be applied because um, we submit that it would be necessary to re-examine um, those aspects. However, there is there is a, a method of rationalising the remedy and power given in power and Benny um, that I that we submit could be used in the cases of these types when you are trying to find a remedy that can reflect these factors. Um, in that case, um, the trial judge awarded what amounted to approximately £11,000 um, over and above the expenditure, which represented approximately 4% of the total value of the expectation, which was £280,000. Um, I'm not suggesting that 4% is, is a level that should um, strictly be taken as the appropriate proportion of um, the expectation, but it might be one way of... Um, of reflecting poor proportionality to, to, to deal with factors such as disappointment. Um, in our case, 4% of the total value would be uh, £4 million. And if that was added to the expenditure uh, or the, the um, quantifiable reliance, as was done in Powell and Benny, that would lead to a total award of £4.5 million. I'm not suggesting, my Lord, that that is um, the remedy you should, exactly you should award today, but it is one that's, possible that's approach helpful. to take. Thank you. Thank you very much.
My Lord, before I rebut um, some of the arguments put forward by my learned friend, I'd just like to outline my submissions, um, which are threefold. I submit that the grouping together of estoppels in the manner suggested by my learned friend um, to found the cause of action for promissory estoppel have been inappropriate and unfortunate extension of estoppel jurisprudence. Secondly, I submit that the extension of cause of action to a case of promissory estoppel will do considerable damage to established contractual doctrines. And thirdly, upon close examination of existing authorities and policy arguments, there is no compelling reason to depart from established precedents in the House of Lords and recognise a case of um, a cause of action on these facts. But before I move on to those submissions of my own, I would just like to rebut some of my learned friend's submissions. And I want to do this in four areas. The first is that she noted that, they, or she, she noted that there's no logical distinction between cause of action and defence. Submitted on behalf of the respondents, that, that is not the case. Contract provides an adequate cause of action in these circumstances. In terms of risk allocation, it's extremely important for commercial parties to be able to regulate their behaviour and predict what, they're what commitments they're going to bind themselves into. As such, allowing a cause of action is a distinct matter from a defence. Moreover, it's admitted that there's a greater need for a justification, for a greater justification for a cause of action due to the implications for third parties um, that allowing a cause of action for a mere promise may allow. Now for the, the second uh, point of rebuttal, namely the historical reasons. I would like to note that Lord Scott, in, his, um, in the statement quoted by my learned friend, still does distinguish between promissory and proprietary estoppel. Whilst calling it a subspecies, he recognises it to be distinct he doesn't recognise that there's going to be a cause of action in promissory estoppel, and that is by no means the logic of what he says. Moreover, I would like to turn your logic's attention uh, to the case of Crabbe and Arran District Council. At page 187E, uh, Lord Denning, um, if, I, if I may read it out, it might be easier, sure. uh, says, there are estoppels and estoppels. Some do not give rise to cause of action, some do give rise to cause of action. In the species of estoppel called proprietary estoppel, it does give rise to cause of action. My Lord, it's submitted this is an explicit statement that there are distinct types of estoppel, some of which give rise to cause of action, some of which don't. But the idea of merging together the doctrines to create a unified doctrine of general estoppel uh, is, 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 is unwarranted on the account of the authorities in this case. Thirdly, I would like to rebut the point concerning consideration. My learned friend, it would appear by the, 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 um, the, the line of her reasoning, would want to have cases such as William and Roffey overruled in order to tighten up consideration. However, she doesn't explicitly say this in her submissions. I think it would be a very serious implication um, of these, of, to allow cause of action in this case um, to, to require a, a strand of case law emerging from Williams and Roffey to just be torn up. Um, finally, um, she says that the basis of allowing a cause of action in this particular instance is an inequity. It's admitted that an inequity, or unconscionability, or any similar term that one wants to use, essentially amounts to what the judge had for breakfast. This is not a satisfactory way of regulating relationships between commercial parties. What we need is commercial certainty, and the vehicle for commercial certainty is best found in a contract. And so it is that I would like to take you through my submissions. The first of which is that it's inappropriate and unfortunate extension of estoppel jurisprudence to allow a course of action for a case of promiscuous estoppel. Submitted that promissory estoppel and proprietary estoppel have developed as two separate doctrines. They share certain similarities. It is conceded that um, they both arise from, they both can arise from promises, neither needs consideration to operate, and both are within certain limits revocable. But the differences must be given due heed. The development of the case law has always recognised these differences. 
Insofar as the House of Lords and Corbyn Yeomans Road failed to set out a way in which estoppel was to be favoured in, in a general um, fused doctrine, it cannot have intended to merge the two doctrines. The House of Lords, were it to do so, would have to set out an explicit test. And it is submitted that neither the House of Lords and established authority in Colin Yeoman, nor my learned friend of her submissions, have laid out a clear test of what this new fused version of periphery of, of periphery estoppel cause of action would be, or even what the general uh, form of the cause of action would be. And I would note now the differences between pr proprietary estoppel and periphery estoppel. In some respects, it's narrower. Proprietary estoppel is narrower. It's limited to property and detriments needed. However, in some respects, it's wider. Periphery estoppel only arises if the representation is clear, precise, or unambiguous. And moreover, proprietary estoppel has a history of family cause of action in a way that the um, cases of commissary estoppel do not. I can see historically how they've been treated differently, but why, in your submission, should they be treated differently? My Lord, this goes to the policy arguments, which is my, my first submission, if I now I may turn immediately to it, which are that commercial certainty is a very, very important consideration for the law. And the danger of a structured, of, of allowing cause of action in this case, which isn't properly structured, is to, is to result in there being no clear limits to the scope of the Wolfen Stores principle. Uh, as well as being hard to, to reconcile with established principle in that respect, there's also the problem of in commercial relationships, we're not just dealing with the two parties themselves, but there's a third party, there's the third party creditor, who must be able to regulate the way in which he behaves to those two parties, the promisor and the promisee, in a way which enables him to efficiently allocate risk. Otherwise, there's a risk of economic stagnation. Creditors won't want to give loans. Um, for fear that the money um, would be frittered away on, on causes of action or on, on binding promises, uh, which parties potentially didn't actually intend to, to be bound by. There's a risk that if we extend the cause of action too greatly, without the formality constraints of consideration, parties will end up being subject to obligations which could both harm themselves and harm creditors in a way which they didn't foresee. So you think it will amount to, in effect, creating relationships akin to contract? Well, my learned friend uh, says that consideration is uh, the, the cause of action here, or the detriment, is equivalent to um, consideration, yes. seemingly suggesting yes. that this case is not an estoppel case, but rather a contract, contract case. case yes. um, it's admitted that the way, the way in which the submissions have been structured and the case was brought to the House of Lords before us is as an estoppel case, and whether the promissory estoppel should, should form the basis. Yes. Um, and in that respect, um, the arguments which, which I'm submitting today are going to address that question. Yes, no, I understand. And flexibility is an adoption of, of consideration. I'll call for another case another day. Um, if I may, I shall briefly now turn to my uh, second submission, which concerns the contractual doctrines. Um, it's submitted that the problems in unifying estoppel could do great damage to two um, considerations, <coughs> two doctrines in contract. The first is that of consideration. The cause of action in proprietary estoppel is permitted because it doesn't do damage to contract. The same cannot be said of promissory estoppel. Proprietary estoppel was originally explained in terms of acquiescence or encouragement, and so it didn't conflict with consideration. Rather, it was, a, it was a response to unjust enrichment. However, promissory estoppel entails necessarily the enforcement of an obligation or a gratuitous promise, which the courts traditionally, since the 19th century, have not recognised to be binding on parties. What, what we're asking for here, or what my learned friend is asking for, is a fundamental alteration in the structure of contractual relationships or binding relationships between parties. And it's submitted that the 
that implication is not borne out in the case law. The case law of, of, of Cobb and Yeoman does not lead to that implication. The House of Lords haven't set out a clear test of what the newly structured estoppel would be. And moreover, they clearly distinguished, whilst recognising proprietary estoppel to be a subspecies of principal estoppel, they recognised them to be two separate things. And on that point, I would like to turn to the established precedents. Where I have a little time, I'm going to in terms of the same point, sure. uh, which is um, that the finding in Wilton's stores does not accord with English precedent, and though it barely warrants saying, it is still worth repeating that um, Wilton's stores being an Australian case is merely persuasive and not binding on this court. Um, Dillman's Wellen is best seen as a case of enforcement of contract. Indeed, Lord Westbury used the language of, of valuable consideration in that case. Um, so it cannot be used as the basis for a platform for a cause of action for a prince to stop it. Uh, secondly, the case of Cobb and Yeoman's Row um, cannot have been intended to create a cause of action. No authority was cited for the proposition of a, to move to a Walthamstall's model. Um, and if that were the implication, one could presume that the House of Lords would have said so explicitly, so great is the change it would affect on the law. Um, and thirdly, uh, the case of Crabbe and Arum um, that is submitted isn't best seen as a case of, of promissory estoppel, but rather it's a departure from traditional rules of proprietary estoppel, in that there's no need, in this case, of due to necessity and public policy reasons um, of, of the land issue and completely sterilised and useful land. Um, they didn't require an extension of promissory land, but in that respect, it's still a proprietary estoppel case. It doesn't mark a fused um, doctrine. And so finally, um, I would just like to talk on Walton's stores itself, since this forms the crux of my learning friend's submissions. Walton's stores relies on certain authorities in a way in which does in a way that does not accord with the English approach. If you could be brief at this point. Absolutely. Um, the case of Attorney General Hong Kong and Humphreys is cited and said to be a case of promissory estoppel. The House of Lords in Cobb and Yeoman said that it was explicitly said that it was a case of proprietary estoppel. Um, similarly, um, Crabbin Aaron was described as a case of promissory estoppel, but in fact as I've submitted, it's best seen as a case of proprietary estoppel. So just to quickly conclude my points, um, I would say that the submission rests on three grounds. First of all, um, that there is damage going, there's the risk of damage to contractual doctrine. Secondly, that the fusion of, in, into a greater equitable doctrine of estoppel is both unwarranted um, from the case law and undesirable for policy reasons. Uh, and thirdly, that the authorities do not bear out um, such a cause of action. Unless you have any more questions. No, that's very helpful. Thank you. Hello, I'm Catherine Young, Junior Counsel for Respondent in this matter. And I shall be responding to the second ground of this appeal, which states that the remedy for promissory estoppel in this case should be an award of £100 million. If your Lordship should decide the first ground of this appeal in favour of the appellant, it is the respondent's submission to the second ground of the appeal that the appellant should receive what amounts to the expectation measure of damages should be rejected. If promissory estoppel is recognised as a cause of action in English law, we submit that it is the reliance measure, rather than the expectation measure, that should be awarded as damages. The respondent's submissions are as follows, my lord. Firstly, that the doctrinal basis of promissory estoppel is to remedy harm, 
The reliance measure is the only award consistent with this basis. Secondly, my Lord, we submit that an award of the expectation measure stands to undermine the law of contract. But before I begin my submissions, my Lord, I'd like to respond to a number of the points made by our learned friend, junior counsel for the appellant. Now, much of what Ms Mackenzie said on her first point, that the expectation measure should be awarded in this case, I'll deal with in the body of my submissions. But I'd like to address her second argument now, and that's the idea that if the reliance measure is to be relied upon, the um, figure should be more than the £500,000 overtime, which we all agree upon. Her first point was that we should transfer the proprietary estoppel structure um, of assessing damages to the promissory estoppel context. Now, my lord, we say, the respondent submits that this is undesirable in principle. The appellant's counsel herself has emphasised the broad and flexible nature of the doctrine of promissory estoppel. And we say that if a doctrine is so broad, and in effect, as she would submit herself, a substitute for contract, what we need is commercial certainty in the damages that we award for such a cause of action. When we look at the discretion that is involved in proprietary estoppel cases, when we consider the vast body of case law that's been generated just in the last decade on this point, and the confusion and criticism that is um, incurred, we say that there's no reason to broaden it out to a wider, um, to a wider um, audience. Secondly, my lord, we'd say that this is not, even if we do follow the proprietary estoppel structure, a bargain case, as my learned friend would submit. For a bargain case in proprietary estoppel, the expectation and detriment need to be defined with reasonable certainty. Now, my learned friend herself admitted that it's difficult to quantify detriment in a case like this. She mentioned stress, she mentioned disappointment, but the very fact that these are very nebulous um, matters and ones that she declined herself to quantify gives doubt in my mind, certainly, that these elements can be defined with reasonable certainty in the case in hand. We'd also submit that the expectation of the claimant, which is described um, in, in the facts as being an half of the enterprise, is still itself very nebulous. We don't know whether the enterprise is the company, whether the enterprise is the insultinator itself. And given all these um, uncertainties, we say it's no basis to be introducing a bargain case element into this um, case before us. But if your logic permits, I shall now move on to the first submission of the respondent, naming that the doctrinal basis of promissory estoppel is to remedy harm, and the reliance measure is the only award consistent with this basis. Now, the basis of promissory estoppel, my lord, can be distilled to a choice between two alternatives, and the respondents submit that it is necessary for the coherence of the law that we choose one of these two. Firstly, that estoppels are concerned with the enforcement of certain types of promises, and secondly, that estoppels provide protection against harm arising from reliance upon the conduct of another. My lord, we submit that it is the latter explanation, that estoppels exist to protect against harm that is most consistent with the authorities in this area. If this is correct, then it is the reliance measure that we should award in promissory estoppel cases. The respondent submits that there is a trend in the English case of proprietary estoppel towards awarding the reliance measure. Now, obviously, we wish to maintain the distinction between proprietary and promissory estoppel. But what um, the respondent submits, my lord, is that we can learn from the problems that have been occurred in calculating the damages in proprietary estoppel, and we can identify a clear trend in judicial thinking towards awarding the reliance measure. I would draw your Lordship's attention to the, to the 2007 case of Powell and Benny as an example of this point. And in this case, as the facts, as I think my learned friend submitted, were that claimants who incurred minor expenditure in the expectation of receiving properties worth £280,000 were awarded compensation of £20,000, an award which appears to represent the reliance measure. 
Now, there are two themes present in this judgment, my lord, which we say supports the award of the reliance measure should permissive estoppel ever be recognised as a cause of action. First, we have the idea of the minimum equity principle. Now, this was a dictum raised by Lord Justice Scarman in Crown and Air and District Council at page 198. Um, he referred to the idea of the minimum equity to do justice to the plaintiff as the appropriate award in estoppel cases. Can you just take me to that little extract? Did you say page 198? Page 198, yes. Um, I think it's at the bottom of the um, page. Just before, yeah. And what we would say, my lord, is that this idea of the minimum equity to do justice was then raised again in Powell and Benny, specifically being referred to in the conclusion that an award that represented the reliance measure was appropriate on these facts. The second related theme, my lord, and one that you actually mentioned when questioning my learned friend, uh, uh, junior counsel, was the desire to put an end to the practice of making manifestly disproportionate awards to the harm suffered by the claimant. We say, my lord, that the concept of proportionality exerts a downward pressure on the size of awards. It's present in Powell and Benny itself. Sir Peter Gibson at paragraph 34 declares himself wholly unpersuaded that the judge was wrong to form the view that the expectations of Mr. and Mrs. Powell to receive the properties worth £280,000 were out of all proportion to the detriment they suffered. In the case before us, an award of Mr. Birch's expectation, that's £100 million, half the value of Papamathias Limited, is clearly wholly disproportionate to the value of his reliance. We would submit, my lord, that the value of reliance should be maintained at £500,000, the agreed award of the overtime, since um, any other factors we can take into account are, firstly, purely conjecture, and C, impossible to quantify. What we would um, submit, my lord, is that all this happening in the, um, the proprietary estoppel context shows the present concern with the need to um, minimise the awards in estoppel cases and to give effect to the reliance measure rather than the expectation measure of the claimant. I mean, there is the argument that the function of an estoppel like this is to uh, is for the promise in question to be enforced. Oh yes, that is an argument, my lord. And on that basis, that perhaps, perhaps disproportion is not relevant. That's certainly one alternative viewpoint on the theory of estoppel, my lord, but we would submit that it is firstly inconsistent with authority, and secondly that it will undermine the law of contract, which is a point I'll actually be going on to in probably a minute or two, if your lordship would permit me to postpone it thus far. What I would like to do before I get there, though, is to distinguish the case of Walton, Stores and Maher, which my learned friend, Miss McKenzie, relied upon heavily in her submissions that the expectation measure should be awarded in promissory estoppel. Now, we agree, my lord, that the overall remedy in this case was expectation-based. However, my lord, reliance-based reasoning permeated the judgments of the three judges who decided the case on the basis of promissory estoppel. We can see it's just one example of this, the speech of Justice Brennan at page 423. Um, the second last paragraph on the page, uh, shall I read it out to you, my lord? Please. It's, he says, the object of the equity is not to compel the party bound to fulfil the assumption or expectation, is to avoid the detriment which, if the expectation or ex sorry, if the assumption or expectation goes unfulfilled, will be suffered by the party who has been induced to act or abstain from acting thereon. Now, while the award in the case was the expectation interest, we submit that the outcome is explicable for reasons that do not detract from this reliance-based reasoning. The expectation measure in this case, my lord, was awarded by the judge at first instance. And the applicant lessees do not appear to have argued for any other measure in the event that their appeal on the main issue, whether estoppel could be made out at all, failed. Since any alternative to expectation damages therefore appears never to have been argued before the High Court, 
Respondent submits that the reliance-based reasoning of the judges in Walton is in no way diminished by the final award of the case. Now, for my second point, my lord, it is, I would the respondent submits that an award of the expectation measure stands to undermine the law of contract. Even if we acknowledge promissory estoppel as a cause of action, my lord, we say it's imperative for the wider coherence of the law that the expectation measure not be awarded as a remedy. Since the expectation measure is the prima facie award for breach of contract, and especially given the fact that estoppel claims often arise where a contract fails for want of some formality to be made out, the respondent would submit that the award of the expectation measure undermines the cautionary function for which contractual formalities were imposed in the first place. Uh, junior counsel for the appellant seemed highly unconcerned by the fact that the um, structure of the permissive estoppel cause of action was, as she put it, akin to contract. However, we would say, my lord, that if we are to maintain separate causes of action, it's imperative that they remain separate, and that the, correct, the allocation of risk and the cautionary function of formalities that operate within the law of contract are preserved untouched. The very fact that a contract is not put into formation, my lord, would suggest to us that an allocation of risk has been made. To allow promissory estoppel to catch up for all the same remedy would, um, the respondent submits, be contrary to the very purpose of the law of contract itself. Unless your lordship has any further questions, I conclude the submissions of the respondent on this matter. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Do you have anything add to add the Are you going to be dealing with the first round for appeal? I believe we only have a three minute right of reply to address both rounds of appeal. Right, yes. I'm going to be addressing both. You're going to be addressing both, okay. Yes. Um, firstly, if I could briefly deal with some of the points made by my learned friend on the first round of appeal. Um, firstly, just to clarify, he said at one point that um, my submission suggested that the doctrine of consideration should be tightened up so as to overrule cases such as Williams and Roffey. If I could just clarify that uh, the very point I was making is that it should in fact be loosened so as to allow detrimental reliance to be a kind of consideration. Secondly, to deal more generally with his arguments, uh, with the greatest respect, it seems that perhaps my learned friend has misunderstood our submissions. His submissions seem to be a response to an argument that the doctrines of promissory and proprietary estoppels should be fused into one single doctrine, and that is not, in fact, what we were arguing. Uh, the appellant simply submits that we should take a step towards a more coherent approach by eradicating the distinction based on one doctrine giving rise to a cause of action and the other not doing so. My argument was that there is no logical distinction between uh, giving rise to a cause of action and acting as a defence, and therefore it's possible to keep the estoppels distinct and as two separate species, while still accepting that they both may give rise to a cause of action in law. To move on to the second point, the second ground of appeal, excuse me. Firstly, uh, my learned friend suggested that uh, the remedy given in Walton Stores was in fact uh, a case of avoidance of harm or detriment, and that that should mean that reliance was awarded. However, if we read carefully the judgment of Justice Brennan, he, is, he in fact agrees to award expectation. We can see in this case that expectation is not a mere proxy for reliance. It would have been possible, for example, to quantify the exact reliance by looking at the cost of the demolition and the subsequent building works. However, the aim of the action may be to prevent detriment, but in this case that is in fact vindicated by awarding the expectation as a remedy. 
If we look at uh, part of the judgment of, of Mr Justice Brennan, he says that an equitable estoppel is binding in conscious on the party that stopped, and it is to be satisfied by that party doing or abstaining from doing something in order to prevent detriment to the party raising the estoppel, which that party would otherwise suffer by having acted on or abstained from acting in reliance on the assumption or expectation. This shows quite clearly that he's talking about, yes, protecting, uh, avoiding detriment, but in fact, the way that he uh, concludes that we should avoid that detriment is by awarding reliance. Uh, furthermore, just a very brief point, my learned friend suggested that the figure of £20,000 in Powell was uh, pure reliance, but we can see that this is not in fact the, the case if we look at the full size of the estate and the, of the disappointments uh, suffered. The figure of £20,000 is uh, substantially more, I think, as my learned colleague suggested, around £11,000 more than the amount of pure reliance. And therefore, limiting the damages to £500,000 in this case would not be in keeping with the reasoning in Powell and Benny. My Lord, unless you have any further questions, that concludes the submissions. No, thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. I didn't realise I was going to announce the winner, and I think marginally the panel's got here.